You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. A quick look back at U.S. midterm elections and at what did and didn't happen. Is Iran looking at waging cyber-enabled economic warfare? If you use Apache Struts, update now to avoid remote code execution. A spyware delivering app is smishing Spanish-speaking users of the Play Store. And once again, people really seem to think that Elon Musk will return them their Bitcoin donations tenfold. Enough people to make crime pay, anyway. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, November 7th, 2018. The U.S. midterms are over with, as the Wall Street Journal puts it, no significant foreign influence seen by either officials or private companies watching the vote for cyber attacks. That is, there was no apparent wave of hacked databases, manipulated vote counts, voter suppression by electronic alteration of records, systematic fraudulent voting enabled by computer network attack, denial of service, and so on, what we've had occasion to call hacking proper. This is despite the various problems found in voting hardware around the country, no more than usual. Most observers didn't even see a particularly large spike in election-targeting information operations. Facebook did confirm that the coordinated inauthenticity they found in about a 100 accounts the social network suspended this week was connected to Russian operators. Those operators included, unsurprisingly, the notorious St. Petersburg troll farm that calls itself the Internet Research Agency. The various ongoing influence operations spotted seem to amount to a new normal and can be expected to continue post-election. Some of that disinformation will seek to shake confidence that the election was fairly conducted, as the U.S. Department of Homeland Security emphasized in press briefings yesterday. All that matters to the adversaries is creating an impression that the vote was untrustworthy. All of this is, of course, gratifying to see. The apparent lack of hacking proper may remind older observers of what happened, for the most part nothing really, at the end of the Y2K panic. But it's also likely that, as Fifth Domain reflects, that the relatively smooth election was the result of some intelligent preparation over the past two years. There's surely more effective sharing of information between federal agencies and state election bodies, and the Department of Homeland Security seems to have been patiently working to build some sensible consensus models. What effect, if any, the barking about U.S. Cyber Command's ability and willingness to rain virtual scunion down on foreign state that so much has looked sideways at the polling is, of course, unknown. The U.S. willingness to openly signal that it was prepared to cry havoc and release the dogs of the World Wide Web was interesting and will be worth watching in the future. 
Those interested in nation-state threat actors and what might be expected of them may find the Foundation for Defense of Democracies' outline of Iran's cyber-enabled economic warfare interesting. Their analysis suggests that Iran's willingness and ability to learn have made it a more dangerous actor in cyberspace. The study also concludes that re-imposition of sanctions against Iran for what the U.S. considers Tehran's violations of the agreed framework to limit nuclear proliferation in the region will embolden the regime to resume cyber attacks against economic targets in regional rivals like Saudi Arabia and perennial adversaries like the U.S. and Israel. In the aftermath of a data breach, it's become routine for observers to keep an eye on the dark web to see if and how quickly the breached data makes its way into underground online markets. Christian Lees is CISO, and he also heads up the intelligence team at InfoArmor, where they spend a good amount of time monitoring the dark web. The state of the dark web today is, in my humble opinion, could be compared to any other major marketplace, right? It's it's driven by supply and, and demand, and it's much like an organism. It, it moves, it, it corrects itself, it adapts. I see being in the dark web every day, I see it uh, absolutely growing. It's, it's growing massive hmm. very quickly. We see marketing messages certainly towards consumers that it's this uh, this scary thing, this this bad neighborhood that you don't want to accidentally <laughs> wander into or or find your information in there. Uh, how does that uh, compare to what you see? It's actually a great question. You know, I I mean, again, I think that when you know consumers, when we think of the dark web, we automatically think of that guy with the hoodie, and you know, he has like no face. And and in my humble opinion, I I really think that. What's going on in the dark web is, uh, again, of course, naturally we have this kind of elite closed area, kind of like what you alluded to, right? Almost like a speakeasy, right? It's like two knocks and a whistle and they open the door and you get in. Hmm. There, there's certainly that kind of environment, you know, very closed uh, marketplace. But this is really for the elite threat actor. And I think what we are seeing today is is these elite threat actors uh, that are very difficult to get to um, are more willing to kind of engage third-party brokers. Uh, and that's where we kind of see the dark web absolutely expanding, right? So let's, let's let these third-party brokers resell in the more kind of open environment. So for organizations that are out there trying to protect themselves, how do they What's an appropriate way for them to dial in the amount of concern and attention they should pay to the dark web? That's a very difficult question, right? Because we are doing nothing. We as consumers and we as organizations, we are doing nothing but increasing our digital identity every single day. And that's that's what fuels the underground economy, right? For example, compromised credentials, which is largely commodity-based data, in, within the underground economy, um, but but we are so willing to go use uh, our credentials, oftentimes, unfortunately, our corporate credentials for these third-party websites. This is where the suppliers gets their goods, right? Uh, compromising these third-party websites, and 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 that fuels the underground economy. So I think that many organizations, uh, you know, they they have a sophistication level that. They can monitor open source environments and uh, check for their data. But for the you know small to medium businesses, it's pretty difficult, right, to understand the dark web. And 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 you know obviously I recommend that they 
they partner with a, with an organization that that helps them hunt the hunter within the underground economy. You know, I speak all over the world. I you know I I, I speak to you know the infosec community, and something that I find a little disappointing is I hear this this constant trend or this constant comment. In, in the info security world, of it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it just drives me insane. <laughs> so I would just like to take one minute and acknowledge the amazing work that that, uh, that, that the good people do, the info security. We protect every day. We do a really great job. So I just – I think it's really worthwhile just to, to acknowledge that. Mm. However, having said that, I, I – Something that has uh, that we are currently researching in the underground economy is, you know, threat actors. They are, uh, like I said, the underground economy. It's it's an organism. It adapts. It moves. They are in recognition at how well organizations do protect. Uh, for example, you know, it was not long ago that you could simply go to your bank with your username and password, right? Yeah. Uh, so threat actors were regular selling a username and a password and a URL to log into, and and a threat actor could have have a heyday with that. Um, however, today, um, these organizations tend to protect with with variables, system variables. So threat actors today are actually not only selling the credentials, they're also selling the variables of your environment, of your machine itself. So, for example, if I were to go to my financial institution, they're going to look at um, perhaps my browser or an MD5 hash in my browser. Uh, they're going to look at perhaps maybe cookies that I have on my system uh, or, or you know, patching level or the resolution of my screen. And, and they're going to make kind of like this pre-decision about me prior to ever successfully putting in my credentials that if if my environment doesn't essentially match uh, the the known variables of, of these credentials they're going to step up challenge uh, me and threat actors have you know they've gotten wise to this so now in these uh, underground economy you know dark markets they're actually selling not only the credentials but they're selling the users environments. Uh, the variables uh, along with it, the cookies, the you know all of the settings, and they package it up in just a uh, a small uh, web browser extension that you load. Therefore, you can bypass the step up challenge, which to me is absolutely mind blowing. That's Christian Lees from InfoArmor. The Apache Software Foundations urge users of Struts 2.3.36 to update the Commons file upload library to avoid a remote code execution flaw. Struts is widely used and the recommendation should be taken seriously. Security firm Trend Micro warns that a malicious app in Google Play is appearing in Spanish-language smishing attacks. At the end of October, Trend Labs researchers found an app, Mobile Secure, available in the Play Store. It represents itself as a mobile token service, but was in fact spyware. The developers, who've succeeded in getting other malicious wares into the chain-link-fenced garden of Google Play, were unusually slick and persuasive in offering a professional-looking impersonation of a legitimate app. But, of course, you don't really need to even be that persuasive. For example, nobody falls for advanced fee scams anymore, right? I mean, really. Right? I mean, you know, who's going to believe that someone would actually marry you if you sent them some money? 
After all, that scam was exposed as far back as the Three Stooges' Crash Goes the Hash, Opus 77, 1944, when the society matron was saved by freelance reporters from the bogus married proposal of a crook who styled himself the Prince Sham of Ubidarn. By the way, if you don't know Mr. Howard and Fine's Opus 77, our film criticism desk recommends it highly, a film of novelistic complexity, they say, going on to call it a ringing affirmation of journalistic integrity and a rejection of the bald cynicism of Citizen Kane. Two thumbs way, way up, and it makes last year at Marion Bad look like an 8mm knockoff of It's a Wonderful Life. And for sure, no one would think that Elon Musk is actually, like, giving away ten times the amount of Bitcoin you send over to him just to establish your identity, right? <sighs> Wrong. It seems that a relatively convincing set of hijacked Twitter accounts, up for only about a day, convinced people to send in 392 Bitcoin payments, amounting to about $180,000. Let that sink in. People were convinced enough to act 392 times and give the bogus Elon a nice 180k payday. But what's that, you ask? Weren't people looking for the blue check seal of authenticity? They were looking, and the blue check was there for all to see. They overlooked usage errors and bad grammar to swallow the fish bait, hook, line, and sinker. So those who live by the blue check die by the blue check, figuratively, of course. So if you're asked to send some money in advance, just don't. And if you slip up and do, then lawyer up. May we recommend someone like I Cheatham, the attorney featured in the Stooges' fine Opus 83, Pests in a Mess. Hey everybody, want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, it's great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch today on breach notification laws and the impact that they have on incident response. What can you share with us? Well, I've been seeing a trend that companies are rushing to notify uh, regulators of, of a data breach. And the startling aspect is how they revise their numbers. And uh, I'm not going to call anyone out specifically, but you see uh, some organizations that are uh, reporting the tens of millions or the hundreds of millions identities that they have been uh, suspected to have been stolen. And that sets off a a firestorm of activity. People are getting worried. They don't know really yet if they've been affected. And many times these organizations can actually do themselves a disservice or harm by alerting the regulators and being so public because the adversaries are now aware that there has been a breach and, and or that they have been found. Hmm. And I think that a a more pragmatic approach has to be adopted by our industry, uh, by organizations, and by regulators to have a a time period for investigation. My team frequently responds to these large-scale incidents and in, in breaches. It's really quite startling being on the inside and and not exactly knowing the extent, and then uh, organizations go public there's still a little bit of revising that has to happen in in the public sense. So I think that regulators really need to give that uh, time period to uh, to companies in order to get their facts straight, to understand the uh, the scope of the impact and be able to articulate that in a very clear way to the public before uh, before rushing to judgment. So do you envision this being something where the uh, the organization could could perhaps contact the regulators and say, hey, we've had a breach and, and, and then allow them to make their case? This is why we think it's in everyone's best interest to wait a little while uh, before we go public with this. Yes, I think that there is a graded uh, or there's a gradient uh, approach that should be adopt- adopted by regulators so that uh, the the first level would be we have an incident. We think it's it's uh, of this scope, but give us some time and be able to have a dialogue with regulators saying it's going to take us two weeks to do the forensics on these 30 machines. And then after those two weeks, we will report back on what we know. Uh, and if it is if there's some empirical data to support the initial uh, compromise vector and the initial compromise numbers, then the regulator can then uh, help them go public from that. But right now, it seems to be more of a Boolean, a black and white uh, decision point by by regulators. Hmm. All right. Interesting. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. 
Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. Cyber.